Seems like probably since the last time we met for Easter, a lot has happened. It's been something of a heavy year. I don't know if you feel that way. Uh, A very heavy year. The Syrian refugee crisis continues. The ugliness of the presidential election and season. The Zika virus. Always the North Koreans. Always, I mean. Just last Sunday on Palm Sunday, 44 Christians were killed in Egypt when suicide bombers went into two different churches and detonated bombs. Just last Sunday. So it's heavy. Life is heavy. The world is heavy. Who can roll away the heaviness? Google? Amazon? Microsoft? Democrats? Republicans? Libertarians? Who can roll it away? On Easter, we remember that the heaviest of things can only be rolled away by God. That He is the only one with the power, the love, the compassion to roll away the heaviness of this life, the heaviness of death and disease, the heaviness of this world that we live in. And we know that because on Easter he rolled away the heaviness of the stone, which kept God the Son in the grave and he rolls it away. And so we know he can roll other things away too. And that's what we're celebrating today and we'll take a look at at what that means. Over the last two weeks at Sedaris, we've been looking at the last days of Jesus. What was he doing in his very last days before he was crucified? Because we know that what happens in our last days, those things we choose to do when we know time is limited, when we know resources are limited, that tells us a lot about what we care about most. And, And so we look, Jesus served others. He served the poor. He served the blind. He serves in his last days, and he loves to serve. But that's not all he does. We also saw that he receives worship because God is the God of glory and deserves our worship. We were made to praise his name. And then on Friday, we looked at Jesus gives his own life. He sacrifices everything that he is for us as a substitution for our error, our shortcoming our sin. But the very last thing that Jesus did that we see in the Gospels is that He rose from the dead. That God, by His power, brought Him back to life. And we see that this was His true purpose in coming, to die and to rise again. Yes, serving. Yes, helping the poor. Yes, healing the sick. But ultimately, to die and to come back to life. That was his main purpose. That's what he came to do. And ultimately, what we see in the cross and the resurrection, you can't have one without the other. We see that what Jesus is actually accomplishing is that he's uniting. He's merging heaven and earth. And that's what we're going to look at today. The merger between heaven and earth. That is what Jesus accomplished when he rose from the grave. The reason that I want to talk about this is because it's been heavy on my heart that I think we have something of a crisis, a crisis of purpose within the church and even for those outside of the church. You say, well, if you're a Christian, 
Why do you celebrate? Why do you celebrate on Easter? Why do you celebrate every Sunday? Why do you tell others? Why do you invite others to celebrate with you? Why do you share with them the news about Jesus? If you're not yet a Christian or you're unsure what you are or who you worship, why even consider at all if this is true? And I think sometimes we take a lesser truth, which is that it's good to meet together, it's good to have community, it's good to serve others, to work together, but that ultimately runs out. Ultimately, we say, is it really worth it? As this crisis of purpose sort of has been haunting me, and it's kind of been haunting me for the last 10 years, but lately it just seems to be coming up in my mind over and over again, uh, what I realized is that if the resurrection is true, then the reason that we celebrate, the reason that we tell others, the reason that we even consider it at all is that the resurrection shows us, proves to us, that we do have more hope than just a really good life here and now. We have a new heavenly home that God promises to us, a new heavenly body that He gives to us. And if that is true, then why wouldn't we celebrate? Why wouldn't we tell others? Why wouldn't we consider, is this true? And that's what the resurrection is all about. That's what Jesus proved. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a loving man. He proved that there is life after death. That there is a new body. And so we need to recapture this hope. We need to reinvigorate our faith if we are Christians or our consideration if we're not yet a Christian. We need to drink the juice because we live in a spiritually diabetic society. We need the thing that we lack the most, which is full hope. And so we talk about heaven. And we're going to do a series, a five-week series, starting for the next five weeks after today, about heaven. What is heaven? Is it just wishful thinking? I think not. Is it just hoping for fire insurance? I think not. It is actually clinging to the hope that is the only hope that actually gives us the energy to live life the way we're meant to live. So we're going to talk about what is heaven? Who is heaven? Where is heaven? Why is heaven? How is heaven? And so I hope you, if you're new with us today that you'd come back because we can't get to it all here tonight. No, this is not tonight. Today, this morning. This is amazing. It's so early. So much day ahead of us. It's incredible. So I hope you come back. I hope you stick it out and look at heaven with us. Because I think it's something we've stopped talking about because we're maybe a little scared to talk about it. But we need to start talking about it again. Jesus talked about it all the time. And when He rose from the grave, He was proving that heaven is for real. So, let's get started and look at the very first moment of this new heaven that Jesus inaugurates on that first Easter Sunday. So if you have a Bible... Would you grab it and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? If you don't have a Bible, you'll find some on the end of the row. You could ask somebody in your row to grab it for you. You could also look it up on your phone. Just Google 1 Corinthians 15. It should pop up fairly quickly. And as you're turning there to 1 Corinthians 15, let me just recap the story of Easter. Jesus 
was a great teacher. He's going through the land. He was performing miracles. People were following him. And then he comes into Jerusalem in his last week of life, doing what he's always done, healing, serving, teaching, rebuking. And then the leaders decide they don't like this Jesus because he's stirring the pot. And so they falsely accuse him. They put him on trial. They convict him. And they ultimately have the Romans hang him from a cross. And he dies. His body is taken down, put into the grave, the stone rolled over. And then on the third day, as Jesus had predicted himself, his followers went to the tomb to look for him, only to find the grave empty, the stone rolled away. Jesus is not in there, he is gone. Where is he? And as the story unfolds, we see Jesus meeting with his disciples, eating with them, letting them touch his new resurrected body, proving to them that he's alive. And then he meets others as well. In fact, Paul will say in this passage we looked at, over 500 people saw the resurrected Christ. And the Jesus movement began then. This band of disciples who had run away when Jesus was crucified came back together, themselves giving their life ultimately, themselves being crucified, themselves being tortured, all because they believed that they had met the risen Jesus. And they never stopped teaching that. They never stopped proclaiming that. They never stop telling. Even as they're hanging on a cross, people saying, just say that He wasn't risen, that He wasn't the Son of God. And they couldn't because they had met the risen Jesus. So that how, that's how the Jesus movement began. And the message just kept spreading. People just couldn't stop talking about Jesus, sharing what they had done. They were being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it was all because of the resurrection. And last year we talked about how the resurrection is hard to believe. It was hard to believe for ancient people that lived 2,000 years ago, before modernity, before modern science. It was hard for them to believe. And it's hard for us to believe. But that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It did happen. And we must remember that the resurrection is true. And that is the message that we will hear the Apostle Paul sharing with us in 1 Corinthians 15. He is going to remind the church who was struggling, how can the dead come back to life? And he's going to explain to them exactly what he explained to them the first time he told them. Jesus is the first fruit. So would you follow along with me? 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to read what the Apostle Paul, who was one of these people who saw the risen Jesus after his death, what he has to say to them as they're struggling with the idea of the resurrection. Paul says this in verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed it in vain. Here's what Paul is saying. 
He's saying, did we all believe in vain? Did we endure the pain and suffering in vain? Did we sacrifice in vain? He's saying, of course not. And the Gospel, which I first told you, has not changed. It is still true. So he goes on, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So I just told you what I was told and what I saw. He says this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's the disciple Peter, then to the other twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and also you believe. Here's what Paul is reminding them. He's reminding them of the Gospel. The simple Gospel that they had believed, that changed them, that brought them together. It is the historic Gospel. It is the one that originally began the Jesus movement. And it's either true, Paul will say, or it isn't true. And it was either always true, or it was always not true. And if every church along the way, he's saying this to the church in Corinth, can rewrite what the Gospel is, can rewrite what the truth is, if every new generation can decide for themselves what the Gospel is or isn't, then the reason that we even got to this moment in the first place is all a sham. And we can't trust any of it. And so why in the world are we meeting anyhow? And so he reminds them, this has always been the Gospel. This is the Gospel that started the Jesus movement. This is the Gospel that is true, always has been true, always will be true, cannot be changed. He says this, that Jesus died for our sins. He says that Jesus was buried in the grave. And then Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. Then He appeared to Peter. Then to the twelve other disciples. Then to five hundred. Then to His brother James. And then to the Apostle Paul. And now Paul tells them, This is the Gospel. And if you're struggling to believe in the resurrection, all you have to do is go talk to some of those 500 plus people who saw Him alive. He says, most of them are still living. He's saying, go talk to them. Because the Gospel has not changed. It's always been the resurrection. That's always been the climax of the story. It's always been the reason for hope. Now, a couple other things in here, this this section, that are important to see. Paul calls himself the least of the apostles as one untimely born. He says he's unworthy. And the reason he says that is because this apostle Paul, who's writing this letter, who we're now reading, he actually murdered Christians before he saw the risen Jesus. He didn't like the fact that they were coming in and telling people that the Messiah had come when he didn't believe that the Messiah had come until he saw the risen Jesus. Now here's why this is so important. 
Some of you might feel unworthy. Some of you might feel like you've said too many things. You've persecuted Christians. You've mocked them. You've made fun of them. You said, how can you believe in the resurrection? So maybe you feel unworthy, but you're in good company. The Apostle Paul felt unworthy, but then he realized that the resurrection was true. He realized that Jesus had risen from the grave and he realized that his sin, his persecution, was covered by the grace of God through the cross of Jesus. So you're not, wor- you're not unworthy to call yourself a Christian to follow Jesus any more than the Apostle Paul was. And that's great news. But we have to determine, is the resurrection true? So Paul goes on, verse 12, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. This is classic Paul. If you've never read the Apostle Paul, he is something of a wordsmith, but he also loves redundancy. And he just says over and over again, the truth of the argument. And the truth of the argument goes like this. How can we expect resurrection for ourselves if Christ wasn't raised from the dead? How can Christ be raised from the dead if there is no resurrection from the dead? Both can't be true at the same time. So what he's saying is Christ was raised from the dead and therefore there is resurrection from the dead for any human being. But if we can't expect resurrection, then even Christ couldn't have risen because that never happens. He's saying this is devastating, monumental. You can't recover from this kind of thinking if you believe that there is no resurrection. He's saying if that is true, then Christ died in vain. His dying is worthless if he didn't rise again. Because that means death is still the last word. Death is still the victor. Death still has a hold on us. And so does our sin. Even if Christ took it upon Himself, but He didn't raise from the dead, the effect of sin still has the last word. Moreover, Paul tells us, if there's no resurrection, then all those who have died, they're not coming back. They are gone forever. It is the end of them. And so Christians who believed in the resurrection of Christ, if there is no resurrection for all, they're the most to be pitied because they really have nothing to hope for beyond this life, just like everyone else, except that they give of themselves in this life, thinking that there might be something after this life. 
You see how the thinking goes? Luckily, Paul doesn't leave us in this sort of existential crisis because he says in verse 20, look at it with me, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as a man came death, by a man also comes the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he, that's Jesus, delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Paul says, but don't worry. It is true. The gospel that you've always heard is true. Jesus Christ rose from the dead and those who follow him will follow suit. Because Jesus is what Paul calls the first fruits. And here he's using the language of the harvest, which is in the springtime, you see the first fruits of the harvest. And it's good fruit. And you know that there is more coming after that. Paul is saying, when Jesus experienced resurrection from the dead, there is more of the same to come. What Jesus experiences, also those who follow Him will experience. Not immediately, but the full harvest is coming. Now jump over with me to verse 35. A lot of Scripture today, but this is my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. Read this again and again. It's one of the most glorious passages of Scripture ever put to paper. Verse 35 says this. It's going to explain to us, well, what exactly is this resurrected body that we hope in? What is this resurrected body that Jesus experienced? What will we experience if we follow Him? He tells us, verse 35, But someone will ask you, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come in? You foolish person, Paul says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans and another for animals, another for birds and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another of the moon and another of the stars, for the stars differ from star in glory. Here's what Paul is saying to us. He's saying, listen, the resurrected body of Jesus and the resurrected body that we will experience, it's not the same, the exact same as this body. It's, it's not that we are the walking dead. Okay, We do not just come back as we were, just a little bit dirty, just a little bit muddy, we come back as something different. And what, what we come back is not some form of microevolution. I was, I was talking with somebody this week. I can't even remember who it was, if it was you, just throw your hand up. 
Uh, you remember the movie Waterworld? Terrible movie. <laughs> Kevin Costner. Some people love it. So, so it's, it, if you don't know it, it's about a time when the world is flooded and all there is is water. It's a water world. And everyone's riding around on jet skis, clearly. Uh, but also, some human beings have formed gills behind their ears and so they can breathe underwater. That's not what we're talking about here. This isn't just some micro-evolution of the, of the human species that, 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 that happens here when, when Jesus is risen from the grave. Now, turn, let's take, take a break for a sec. Turn to your neighbor and tell them your favorite Kevin Costner movie. Just turn to them. Favorite Kevin Costner movie, real quick. All right, stop. All right, stop. The verdict is in. It is clearly Bodyguard, right? That is a great movie. If you have never seen, Whitney Houston crushes it. Love that movie. The Bodyguard, clearly. It has nothing to do with the sermon. It's just go see that movie. So the body that comes back to life is not, it's not the exact same, but it's similar. It's not some evolution. It's a completely new kind of body. It's more glorious than our earthly body. And God gives us the seed for which will become the full resurrected body when we have faith in Jesus. Something similar, but not the same. And I'll explain more. Turn to verse 42 now. Paul explains a little more. He says this, so, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last, man, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also were those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven." The man of heaven is Jesus. God incarnate. God with us. Emmanuel. Come into this world to be our Savior. He is this last Adam, this life-giving Spirit. And here's what Paul is saying. He's saying God, when He created, formed man. He formed Adam from the dust. From the tangible stuff of God's creation. Before God created, there was no space and matter, no sequence, no history, no time. God created all of that, and in that creation, He formed Adam. Adam is of the earth. He is of the things of creation. But the last Adam, who is Jesus, God the Son, come in the flesh, this last Adam is different than the first Adam. This Jesus, and, and the key word here is became a life-giving body. A, a, a life-giving spiritual body. Now, 
became as important because when Jesus walked the earth, He was just like us. He had a earthly, physical, only, natural body. Just like us. But the key to understanding this is when Jesus died on the cross, was buried in the grave, and God raised Him back up to life, He did not raise Him as just a new natural body. He raised Him to this new, life-giving, spiritual body. This is the heavenly body. And Jesus is the first to experience this. He is that first fruit. And here's the thing. This new body is both fully earthly. It has matter, time, space, sequence. It's historical. It's not just a spirit. Jesus did not just rise from the dead as a spirit. He was not a ghost. He had all of the earthly, but God infused him as well with all of the heavenly, the uncorruptible, the spiritual, the limitless, the immortal, the imperishable. He raised him up, filling the natural body with the heavenly. And so, just as we are born a fully natural, perishable body, we too can experience the heavenly through the resurrection that we can experience through the power of God. Because of Jesus, because He conquered death and sin on the cross, and because He rose from the grave. Now look at verse 53. Look at verse 53. This is our final few verses here. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? When the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on the immortal, what is actually happening here is more than out with the old and in with the new. It's actually what I call the great merger. It's not simply a brand new type. It's the old putting on the new The earthly putting on the heavenly and the two becoming this third new totally unique creation. That's what's happening in the resurrection of Jesus. It is a merger of heaven and earth. It is a new category that God creates for us. He doesn't get rid of the old creation. That was good. It was corrupted by sin, but He redeems it and He creates a third new The resurrected body of Jesus is the first fruits, and we too can experience this new heaven and earth. So think about this idea of the great merger. There's been some good mergers in the history of American business. If you're a business person, you'll like this. Disney and Pixar, great merger. Where would we be without it? No Buzz Lightyear. Thank you very much. There's been some scary mergers, Exxon and Mobil. Monopoly. Okay. There's been some odd mergers in 
history, Nestle and Jenny Craig. Did you know that they merged? They are actually one company. Very confusing. Nestle and Jenny Craig. And then there's the brilliant mergers. There's Facebook buying Instagram for a billion dollars when everyone thought that Zuckerberg was a punk. What are you doing? Now, most people say if, if Instagram was its own entity, it would be worth somewhere between 25 and $50 billion. That's a great merger. That's brilliant. Now, this merger that God makes with His creation through Jesus Christ, through the cross and the resurrection, this uniting of both, this is actually a totally different kind of merger. This is just incomprehensible. It's illogical. Why would He do it? So let me explain it to you one more time in case you've sort of missed what Paul has been saying and what I've been trying to say. God so loved the world. If you know anything about business, bad to make a merger based on love. (laughs) But that's what Jesus does. He so loved the world He had created, including us, that... He came into the world through the incarnation of God the Son into human flesh. You could call this the flesh-ation. God put on flesh. He became fully human. He put on full earthly form. And so Jesus' body was truly and fully and only earthly just as ours. But, When Jesus died, was buried in the grave, and God brought Him back to life, God breathed a new kind of life into Jesus, into His lifeless body. What brought Him back to life was the heavenly. God created a new body that was heavenly, that was immortal, that was limitless, raised Him back to life. But that is not the same kind of life that God the Son had before the Incarnation. This is so important. It is not that He went back to what He was before the Incarnation. He is now something new. Not new in the sense that it was like the new season of The Bachelor. That's not new. It's the same thing over and over. It's not new in the sense of the next great community sitcom. That's just Friends 2.0 trying to capture lightning in a bottle. No. This is truly new. This is not just new in quality or character. This is a new in ontology, which means it is completely different than anything that has ever existed ever existed on earth, and ever existed in heaven. Okay? Because it's the first time that heaven and earth are truly unified in the resurrected body of the risen Jesus. Jesus Christ, now, when He rises from the grave, is truly, has the limitlessness of heaven with the spatial, tactile matter of the created world. This is why in Revelation, 
at the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21, God tells us that, gives a vision to John that the new heavens and earth will come out of the sky. Let me read it for you. John, one of the disciples of Jesus, is given a vision of what will happen at the end of human history. He says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away, ceased to exist, and the sea, that is death, was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven, out of the sky, from God. Prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, and a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man. You see, this is the third new option. It is not back to the garden. It is not back to pre-creation. It is a new holy city. All the good of God's creation united, merged with all the good of heaven into this new thing. And we first see it in the body of Jesus. That's why if you read the Gospels, the body of Jesus can do things that normal bodies can't. It doesn't mean that it wasn't a body. It means that it was a new kind of body. And this merger is the most illogical of all time. It's like Amazon merging with my nephew Wyatt's lemonade company. It just doesn't make sense because they split it 50 50 50% of equity to Weston, 50% to Amazon. It doesn't make sense. It's illogical. But this is what the gospel tells us. Why would God make this deal? Why would He merge heaven and earth? Why would He cut us in? Out of love. And so, He gets all of our debt and we get all of His assets. This is why we call it the good news. This is why we call it the Gospel. We get heaven added on to our humanity through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's truly amazing. I was sitting uh, I was actually walking by the Ship Canal down by the Fremont Bridge and I just stopped and I did some writing this week and I, as I was sitting there uh, I was just thinking about the Ship Canal. You know the Ship Canal goes from Lake Union to the Puget Sound. And I looked up the history of it. There's a couple of guys that you probably heard of that first had the idea. A guy named Pike. Heard about that guy? A guy named Mercer. Heard about that guy? They had this idea to cut a canal so that you could go from the lake to the ocean. So they cut out this canal. Took them a while to do it. But now the two were connected. And I thought about this. And I thought, this is a perfect picture of what has happened on Easter Sunday. Seems like we're stuck sometimes, right? Seems like our world's pretty small. Seems like we're stuck on Lake Union. It's a nice lake. It's a great lake. But it seems like we're made for something more. But then something bigger, stronger, more powerful, with more resources comes along with a long-term vision to create a way for that longing to be played out. 
and they dig the canal. And now my vessel, which I feel like is made for something more, can actually go and be everything it was made to be. Now I can actually take the short trip across the canal and the world is opened up to me. There is no limit. There is nowhere I cannot go. There is nothing I cannot do because a canal has merged the two. Your hopes, your dreams, your desires, your longings start to feel pretty heavy when you're stuck on the lake. But then Jesus comes along and He plows the canal and He opens the waterway so that anyone that trusts in Him can actually go from the stifling smallness of earth to the limitless possibility of heaven. That we too can experience a resurrection like Jesus. That's the hope of Easter. That's the hope that we sing about. That's the hope that we speak about. That's the good news that we share. Does it feel heavy? Does it feel congested? Does it feel like you were made for more? You were. And Jesus made the way that you might go one day and explore all that He has created you to be. That you might be lifted out of the darkness and the mire and you might be released to all that God has created you to be. That's what the resurrection does. That's what Jesus was the first fruits of. He was showing that heaven and earth can now be united through the power of God proved by the resurrection of Jesus. It is true. It is tangible. It is possible. If we can have a resurrection like Jesus, to go on to be everything that we feel like we can actually be. It's not other earthly. It's not clouds or harps. It's all earth and it's all heaven merged together in the new heavens and the new earth in our new heavenly bodies. That is the hope of Easter. That is the hope of heaven. That is what we'll be talking about the next five weeks. I hope it's exciting to you. I hope the possibility of that. And so, I also hope that you're asking yourself this question. How do I experience this? How do I experience a resurrection like this? How do I go from here to there? How do I go from earthly to heaven and earthly? And the answer is that you trust by faith in the person and the work of Jesus. That's all you have to do. And sometimes it feels like you're in the lake and you're just not sure what the canal will bring. Maybe you're not sure what's on the other side of the canal because you've never been into the ocean and you're scared. But by faith, you start down the canal. And as you go, what you realize is that Jesus is worth my trust. He is faithful. He will hold on to you. He is enough. And if you've never, by faith, accepted 
the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus died for you, for your sin, and you've asked him to forgive you, you can do that tonight or this morning. (laughs) Either way. (laughs) And all you do is you say, God, thank you for making a way for me to get past my error, my mistake, my rebelling against you. Thank you for opening up the possibility of resurrection for me. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. Thank you for raising him from the dead so that I too could experience new life. I want that new life. You could just pray a prayer like that tonight, today. And you could start a new life. You could start on the path towards the ocean. You can do that today. Heaven starts today if you make that decision to trust Jesus. You don't have to wait till you die. It starts today. You start living heaven and earth right now. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank You for sending Jesus. We thank You for the cross that He died for us on the cross. That my sin was nailed that day. That I am no longer dead in my sins. That I have a possibility for life and life to the full that You have opened up this way, this canal, that I might go from the smallness of my existence to the limitlessness of a heavenly body and a heavenly relationship with You, Jesus. That You would spend eternity with me. God, I want that. I want my friends here to have it. I want this city to have it. God, give us a hope of heaven. Give us an understanding that what we do is not limited to this life, but it's beyond this life. That the reason we share, the reason we go from this place, the reason we talk about Jesus is because heaven is real. The new heavens and the new earth are real. New heaven and earthly bodies are real. That people can have that if they would just trust Jesus, His work, His life, His death, His resurrection. God, help us to see the hope of heaven. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.